Well, last week, if you were here, we started a new series on the Gospel of Mark. And this week, I want to do something a bit different because I want to zoom out a bit and look at the whole of the book t- um, in, one, in one kind of shot. Almost this Sunday is a bit of a Bible study, if that's okay. We're going to look at the entirety of the Gospel of Mark so that we understand why did Mark write this biography of Jesus. You see, I grew up kind of reading the Bible most days, sometimes not, but whenever I did read it, it was, hey, finding a little verse that meant something to me, right? Or maybe focusing on a passage. And that is good and true, but we can't forget that every author of a book in the Bible wrote the book with a point in mind. That the book in its entirety would have a message that hung together. That was the reason why the author wrote the book. And so when we look at the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of these authors had a particular point in mind as to why they wrote that Gospel. That they were responding to something in the church and going, let me encourage the church and let me write this biography. It wasn't just for funsies, right? It was, oh no, we want to respond to something. So every one of the biographies of Jesus was written with a particular purpose in mind. So for example, if you go to what's left of Barnes and Nobles, right, and you go to the, the biography section and you see like 20 different biographies about Winston Churchill. Some are gonna be Winston Churchill, the leader. Some are gonna be Winston Churchill, the poet. Some are gonna be Winston Churchill, the politician. They're all true. But the author is selecting pieces of the historical truth of who this man is to show one side of him. And so it is with the Gospels. Every author is trying to show us one particular feature of Jesus for a particular purpose. So when it comes to Mark's Gospel, let us zoom out for a minute and go, what is Mark trying to do? Let's not lose his macro message to us as it was to the early church at the time. So whenever you do that, you need to start with kind of the basic facts around this book of the Bible. And so you start with the author who wrote this book. Next slide, if you could have the slide up, it'd be great. So who wrote this book? So Mark is the author of this biography of Jesus, what is called Mark's Gospel, but Mark never appears. It doesn't say, hey, this is Mark. What we have is, is very early accounts in the first century from the early church writing that this is what Mark wrote. And Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. Mark was an early leader in the church, accompanied Paul on many travels. So he knew of Paul, but he particularly knew Peter. Papias, one of the early church fathers in the first century, wrote down that Mark was actually Peter's scribe and translator and wrote down in his gospel, this Mark's gospel, this is Mark writing down Peter's eyewitness accounts and sermons. So when we talk about the gospel of Mark, really what we're saying is this is the testimony of Peter. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus who went everywhere with him. Peter, who was kind of the first among equals amongst the 12 disciples. It was written around AD 60 to 70, somewhere around that. In other words, still within the life of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And actually it was the first of the biographies of Jesus. It was the very first one. We see later on when Matthew and Luke came to write their biographies of Jesus, not long after, they used Mark as primary source material and added to it. And they added to it because Mark wasn't trying to give everything. He was selecting bits of the life of Jesus to show us something about Jesus. What was he therefore doing? Why did he select these bits? Why did Mark write his gospel? Well, he was responding to a deep crisis in the church in AD 60, 70 time. The church was in deep persecution by the Roman emperor, particularly Roman emperor Nero. The church had come out the blocks, right, at at the resurrection, full of faith in the resurrection of Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They were gangbusters, man. But 30 years later, the Roman Empire was trying to crush and stifle and demolish the followers of Jesus. So if you were a Christian in AD 60-ish, you would be facing 
the loss of your home, the loss of your business, the loss of your vocation, and the loss of your life for claiming to be a follower of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but certainly if I was in that situation, I would be asking myself, how much do I believe this? You know, do I really believe this? Like, is Jesus really who we thought he was? And in fact, if, if, we, if he is who he said he was, then why are we going through this trauma right now? There's nothing like trials, tensions, or trauma to get you rethinking, do I really believe this? There's nothing like even in our city going, man, if I come out as a Christian, I may lose my job. Do I really believe this? Man, I'm gonna make decisions about my lifestyle and I'm gonna get socially persecuted for this. Do I really believe this? This was the moment where Mark said, we need, I need to gather the, all that Peter experienced and wrote down in his sermons and I need to write this biography to send to the church to strengthen their faith in deep, challenging times. And therefore this letter, this book, this biography is just as relevant to us as it is to the first century church. I have the honor of being your pastor and I know the personal trials and tensions that many of you are facing, marital issues, children dynamics that maybe blew up over Thanksgiving, vocational dreams being dashed, uncertainties financially. Or maybe you're looking at the world and going, oh my gosh, what's happening in the world around us? The evil, the sex trafficking, the injustice, the ongoing racism and all these issues, these macro issues. And then you think of climate change and politics. We've got the election cycle coming up. You're thinking, oh my word, I, where is Jesus in all of this? Do I really believe this? And so Mark pulls together the account of Jesus to strengthen our faith, faith and to say to us, whatever you're facing, whatever they're facing, whatever you're facing, whatever discouragement, disappointment or disillusionment you may be going through, you, Peter, Peter's testimony written down, Mark, written down by Mark is meant to encourage you with this simple phrase, whatever you're going through, don't forget who Jesus is. Do not forget who Jesus really is. Because when you anchor your faith in who Jesus really is, whatever you face, there is hope. Whatever you face, there's confidence. Remember who Jesus is. This is actually the structure, answering these questions, who Jesus is and what he's done, remember, is actually the structure of the book of Mark. The first eight chapters are solely there to show you and to remind you, this is who Jesus is. The next eight, seven chapters, six chapters, are there to say, look, remember what he's done. And then the ending is that final climactic, unique ending of Mark's gospel where he ends in the cliffhanger intentionally so the reader asks themselves, okay, who do I think he is? We're gonna concentrate this week on act one, who Jesus is. Your answer to that question will determine how you go through the trials and tragedies of life. Whether you face them with fear or faith. Whether you face them with despondency or hope. Whatever challenges you're going through, whatever disappointments you're going through, whatever uncertainty about the future, how you answer that question will determine everything. So what we're gonna do, we are going to read Mark chapter one, which kind of sets us up for the whole eight chapters and then we're gonna dig into it together. And what we're gonna find is simply this. In answering the question, who is Jesus? Mark does two things. He says for the first 15 verses of chapter one, we'll read it now. He's saying, this is who he is. This is who he is. And this is what Peter became convinced of. And so have I. And then from the halfway through chapter one to chapter eight, he says, now let me give you the evidence that you can make up your own mind. 
So in the tradition that we've now adopted, let's stand as we read the gospel together. And I'll read it, you can just listen, but it's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Mark 1, 1 through 34. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when Jesus had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The teachers were amazed at, at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Now remember that word, authority not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Well, news about him spread over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Let's take a seat together. Mark comes out of the gates with Peter's testimony of, I'm gonna tell you who Jesus is. Because once you know who Jesus is, you'll never be shaken in your faith ever again. And that's a re relevant question because today, like then, they would probably be rethinking, did I get this right about Jesus? You know, we all in our culture, particularly in Los Angeles, have a view of Jesus that is kind of more of a, a projection of our own desires or wishful thinking. Jesus is kind of who we say he is. It's kind of, well, to, to me, Jesus is this. To me, Jesus is this. But Peter comes straight away and goes, Jesus is not up for debate. He's an objective person in history. He is who he is. And it's only when you accept him for who he really is does he become the anchor of your faith. If you keep him in a box, whether he's the, 
the little baby Jesus of Talladega night, or whether he's kind of just a, a nice wise sage, or whether he's just a cosmic kind of divine butler just to answer your every whim. He will not be the anchor of your life because he'll refuse to be that. You can't have authority over him. But when you submit to who he is, it changes your life forever. So Peter comes out the state, the gate and says three things about Jesus. This is who he is. The first thing he says is Jesus, the good news, the Messiah. This word Messiah is simply in Greek, Christos, the Christ, meaning anointed king or the anointed one. So Messiah is the Old Testament word for the New Testament word in Greek, Christos. They're the same thing, Messiah, Christ, meaning the anointed king of God's people. This title has been used all through the Old Testament to refer to the leader of the people of Israel. It wasn't necessarily a divine term. It was just this person is the leader chosen by God to bring the people of God into all the things that God has for them. Now the people of Israel were in Roman occupation and they'd been waiting and the, the prophecies to be fulfilled that God would send a new Messiah like King David, the new Christ. And Peter says, I know on the outset you're suffering, but let me remind you, he is that Messiah. But not just the Messiah. He goes, he's also the son of God. Now, son of God is confusing to many because we think in terms of kind of uh, normal language that we say son of someone, but that's not what this title means. Jesus isn't like God gave birth to a son, son of God. And in many ways, we are all children of God because we're created by God, but that is not this term, son of God. It has a very technical meaning in the Old Testament. It's nothing to do with biological birth. It means someone with special status with God. Someone with some spiritual mystery around them that makes them not just human. There's something going on here. So in the Old Testament, Son of God is even referred to angels because they're not human. They've got some special status with God. It's used in about six or seven times in the Old Testament to define a unique relationship with God. And so Peter goes, look, he's not just the Messiah, but there is something unique about him in his relationship with God. And then he goes, now let me tell you what that uniqueness is. And he quotes Isaiah and Malachi who say, one day God himself, Yahweh himself, the Lord in capital letters, which is the way that the Jews referred to Yahweh because they didn't want to actually write out his name. So they use the word Lord in capital letters in our Bibles to go, Yahweh is this person called Jesus. And he's, he sets up this argument because he says, look, do you remember when Isaiah and Malachi prophesied that one day God himself would come, Yahweh himself would come to bring his kingdom, to end all the evil in the world, that one day Yahweh himself will come well, I now am convinced that Yahweh has come and it's in Jesus. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you're going, whoa, hang on Jesus. Now, we think that's a ridiculous claim in our culture to say a man would be God. That's incredible. That's really hard to believe. And so people go, well, maybe that's a bit too much to claim. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's just a teacher. Maybe he's got some kind of divinity within him, but he's not like God, God. Well, if our culture struggles with that, the first century Jewish people more than struggled with that. Like if you claimed that, it was blasphemous. But that is exactly what Peter is claiming. In other words, Peter's saying, look, what we have in Jesus is a deeper insight into who Yahweh is. Let me just trace this very briefly. See, in the very first few chapters of Genesis in the Old Testament, it says, do you remember these lines? God created, God created, God created. That word there is Elohim, which is the generic word for God. Like we have a generic word for God, which is God. And every religion just uses the word God, but you don't know exactly what we mean because People use the word God for many different things. 
Same thing in the Old Testament. The word God referred to lots of different things, spiritual beings. So God wanted to say to Moses, let me be very clear as to what I mean by I am God. There is one true God, and we looked at this a few months ago, there is only one God, and actually I'm gonna take the definition of that God away from you just guessing, and I'm gonna define myself that you know who I am. I even have a name, my name is Yahweh. There's one true God called Yahweh. It's the ongoing revelation as to who God is. Well, Peter's saying that is still true, but our minds have been blown because we've become convinced that Yahweh has like peeled another onion away from who he is, another revelation of self-disclosure as to who Yahweh is. And in Jesus, we see Yahweh. And so Yahweh is still one, but there's this distinctiveness within it. And this next slide here, we see what they start to see is Yahweh is one, but there is an integrity of personhood within Yahweh. So to say Jesus is the son of God is to say he's the son part of Yahweh. He's not somewhere other. Like Yahweh, God here, and then Jesus over here is the son of. No, no, no. He's at the very heart of the one God with this relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit within Yahweh. This is who Jesus is. Of course, it makes sense the more you realize that if we are made in the image of God and God created the universe, it makes sense if there is a relationship of love within God himself. That's why love and relationships are integral to everything we do. If there wasn't this relationship of love within God, then love wouldn't, wouldn't be at the heart of who we are. And yet, didn't COVID show us? We kind of shrivel up and die without community. Love is, our, is the meaning of life. Peter makes this staggering claim. When you're following Jesus, do you remember who he is? With this staggering claim that people in our culture go, I just don't know how I can believe that. With the Jewish culture in the first century going, man, it's blasphemy to believe that. Like a good lawyer, Peter goes, well, let me spend the next eight chapters lining up evidence to give to you the jury that you can see why Peter and why the early church came to this staggering conclusion that in Jesus we have the embodiment of Yahweh. And so for the next eight chapters, it's like in a, in a court of law, he just goes, okay, witness after witness after witness after witness is why Mark actually is so quick through the different witnesses. He's not there to give the full teaching of Jesus. He's not there to give all the details of all the story. He doesn't have time for that. He's trying to cram in all the witnesses to go, look, even he thinks it's Jesus and Yahweh. And so we start straight away with, look, do you remember like the leading religious figure in our age, John the Baptist? Let's call John the Baptist to the stand. And here we have John the Baptist, the leading religious leader of the time, who people were following him as a prophet and he was baptizing people in the wilderness. And then when it comes to Jesus, John goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. No, 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 Jesus is other. He says, look, I, I can baptize you with water. Like any human, I can baptize you with water. But there's only one who can baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with Yahweh himself. And that's Yahweh himself. This is Jesus. The testimony of John the Baptist is, no, Jesus is, do you remember, Jesus is Yahweh with us. Mark quickly follows with, okay, first witness. Second witness is Yahweh himself. At Jesus' baptism, which would have been seared into Peter's memory of, oh my gosh, I will never forget that day when Jesus was baptized. We're all watching him being baptized. And suddenly as he comes out of the water, literally the heavens, the skies are torn open. 
The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends on Jesus. And then the Father, Yahweh, declares for all of us to hear, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The testimony of Yahweh himself, that Jesus is part of the family of Yahweh. And then, of course, we have, for the rest of the eight chapters, the testimony of Jesus himself. I mean, if Jesus didn't claim to be Yahweh, then we don't have to worry about it. But Peter says, do you remember, we all witnessed what Jesus did for three years, which convinced us all, oh my gosh, he's Yahweh. For three years, Jesus was doing stuff that led them to the conclusion, I know this is crazy, I know I might get arrested and kind of imprisoned for this, but I have come to no other conclusion that Jesus is Yahweh. For eight chapters, Peter recounts, this is what he did, this is what he did. Now, interestingly, never once does Jesus in Mark's gospel say to people, uh, surprise, I'm Yahweh. Right, never once did he do that. So he didn't claim verbally in Mark's gospel to be Yahweh but he claimed through his behavior to be Yahweh. Let me explain why he did that and then how he did that. See, I think we would all love in our Western empirical kind of evidence-based investigation to go, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus just to say, I'm Yahweh. But he didn't. Why? Why didn't he do that? Well, I think for two reasons among many. The first is, we know what happened at the end of his life when people started to believe in him as Yahweh, that Jesus was arrested for blasphemy and crucified. Jesus had a three-year ministry to do, a lot to do over three years. If he'd come out of the blocks with, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm Yahweh, it would have been the end, day one. But secondly, there's something about the nature of God that it's just how God rolls in that he's not going to come into your life because he's a God of love, wants a mutual relationship with you, that never once does he come out of the blocks and put you in a position where your own discernment is no longer needed. The dignity of causality, the dignity of free will, the dignity of choice that he's given to humanity means that the way God operates then and today, he's going to show you who he is, but still leave it for you to determine who you think he is. This is the dignity that God gives to you. It's called mutual love by having someone choose the other out of choice. And so Jesus, because of his love for humanity, says, look, I'm not gonna declare who I am. I'm gonna give you the evidence for you to make up your own mind. So I'm going to, for eight chapters, prove to you who I am, not by what I say, but what I do. And that's why in Mark's gospel, this refrain of authority keeps going. Because the way Jesus claimed to be Yahweh was unequivocal because he did Yahweh stuff for eight chapters. And Peter keeps saying, and then, and then, and then, because he's got so much evidence. Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did this. And it's all stuff that only Yahweh can do. It's why people were going, who does this guy think he is? I mean, imagine being in school when you're back in school and the teacher leaves the room And one of the pupils stands up, goes to the front of the class and goes, hey guys, um, I'm going to give you all A's. And you know what? I'm going to close school tomorrow and declare it a rest day because I think we've all been working hard. And in fact, school's off for the rest of the year. You'll all be just laughing going, come on mate, who do you think you are? You're acting as if you're the principal. This is exactly what Jesus did. In his three years of ministry, he made it so clear that his actions were the actions of Yahweh. So for eight chapters, Mark gives 10 ways that God, Jesus used the authority of Yahweh. 
on the screen here. Number one is brokenness, that healing, that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. In me, the kingdom of God has come, which means I'm gonna put the world right. I'm gonna heal every brokenness in the world. I can do that. I got the power and the authority to turn back evil in the world. Secondly, humanity. He went to people and said, you need to follow me. That come under, as you follow me, come under my authority, you'll find life and life to the full. Thirdly, teaching. Did you see that phrase we saw earlier? It says, who is this guy and his teaching? He teaches the law differently to other people because he seems to teach as one with authority, which simply meant this. This guy is not teaching the law as if he's reciting what the law said from the Old Testament. He is actually teaching as if it comes from him. Which is why in the Sermon on the Mount later, it said, hey, do you remember when the Old Testament said this? Well, I say this. It's like, who do you think you are? Demonic activity. The demons were the only ones who knew who this guy was. And that's why they said, are you gonna, what are you gonna do with us? And so they quickly came under the authority of Jesus. And he actually said to them, look, shut up, don't say anything. I got three years of stuff to do. And they submitted. Next is sickness. He went straight to the mother-in-law and healed her. Like, who can do this? Sin. Later on, he said, and then he forgave people their sins. What they had sinned against Yahweh, Jesus says, I forgive you. Have you ever realized you can only forgive people of what they've done to you? And he said, the sins you've made against Yahweh, I forgive you. Old Testament, Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I am kind of the Lord of the Old Testament. I'm kind of what the Holy Spirit is all about. What the Old Testament is all about. Then he said Israel. Jesus then gathered 12 disciples to mimic what Yahweh did in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 disciples to be now the continuation of the new people of God. What Yahweh did, I can do as well. Nature, Jesus walks on water. Stories of him calming winds and storms. Then finally, the authority of Yahweh even over death. He goes to a little girl who's been dead for a while and he raises it up from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're looking at all of these things, eventually chapter eight comes along. Peter's been looking at all of this stuff. It's like, dude, who do you, I can't believe you're doing all that. Like, only Yahweh can do this stuff. And then eventually Jesus turns to Peter in chapter eight, who's the next witness. And he says, so Peter, next slide. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter's like, I know it's crazy. I know people are struggling with this, but I've been around you and there is no doubt you are doing the stuff that only Yahweh can do. Peter is then, I think, soothed in coming to that faith conclusion because Jesus then in the next chapter, chapter nine, goes, um, you're right. I'm just gonna confirm it to you. Come on. Peter, James, and John, come with me. We're gonna go for a hike. And they hiked up this mountain. And they were reenacting what Moses did and Elijah did separately in the Old Testament. Because when Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament went to meet with God, they, were, they went where? Up a mountain. And when they went up a mountain, the different stories, they both had the same experience. They met the glory of God and its brilliance and its radiance. And to, to Moses, God said, you've got to kind of close a bit of your eye. You've got to peek. Because if you see the fullness of me, you'll go blind. And so Jesus said, look, we're going to go meet God. Come with me. We're going to go up the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, Jesus confirmed to Peter, you're absolutely right, mate. And again, he proved it, not with his words, but with actions. And somehow, he peeled away his flesh just for a minute and the brilliance of God shone out. Yahweh on display. Imagine if you appear to James of John going, I knew it! And then to confirm it, on the mountain suddenly appeared Moses and Elijah reenacting their hike up the mountain in the Old Testament. They're beside Jesus and the glory cloud came down among them. In other words, that same Yahweh that Moses and Elijah met in the Old Testament is the same Yahweh here 
veiled in flesh, incarnacy, the fullness of God and his deity. I mean, no wonder Peter said, guys, can we just stay here for the rest of our lives? No wonder. When you've had that encounter, you never want to leave, right? So they came down the mountain and the final piece of evidence that Peter lays out is the clincher of them all. Chapter 15, a lot of his disciples are pretty despondent, pretty defeated. Hey, we thought he was Yahweh, but he just died. And the women gather around the tomb and they see it's empty. An angel sitting there going, I don't know what you're looking here for. He's gone, he's risen. The clincher of it all that confirmed everything was not even death could defeat him. Not even Satan and all that he threw on him on the cross, not even sin and all that was borne by him on the cross, that he was the, he's the author of life and death. And they stood before the historical objective reality of the empty cross and went, he's risen. He's risen. This is not some metaphor. This is not some analogy of resurrection. This is historical objective reality that they all look back on and go, the tomb was empty. The resurrection. I remember when I was at law school, we would often do like mock trials, we'd call them, moot court. You know, we'd basically divide up into prosecution and defense and we would have a proposition and one would argue for the other, one would argue for the other perspective and it'd be all sorts of stuff. You know, should we bring back um, conscription? Should we bring back kind of capital punishment? And we'd both argue it out. One of the topics, I don't know why this was ever put in there from an atheist university in England, was did Jesus rise from the dead? And so there was a team, I was on the team of the prosecution uh, saying that he did. Um, and all my friends on that team were atheists and all the team on the defense were atheists and all of the jury, the rest of the law school were pretty much atheists. Now at the end of two days worth of historical objective evidence for the resurrection, the verdict came in. Unanimous from a bunch of atheists who never went to church in their life. Hmm, well, based on reasonable doubt, I think the evidence is compelling. Jesus did rise from the dead. <laughs> Peter then ends his trial with this crazy ending of the women leaving the tomb with this historic reality of the empty tomb. And they go away and he doesn't end with appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. He doesn't kind of go and then they all went out and spoke the word of Jesus. It ends with this really curious ending that the women went away bewildered, confused and afraid. The end. Now some people go, oh, we must have lost the last page. And some scholars do believe that, but the majority are going, no, doesn't that fit with what Peter's trying to do through Mark in his gospel by going, here's the evidence. Now it's up to you what you do with it. As you face the challenges, as you face persecution, as you face disillusionment, as you face the trials in your own personal life, as you face uncertainty about your vocational future, as you face sickness in your body, are you going to walk away still with fear or are you going to look at the evidence and have faith that no matter what comes, I know who Jesus is and I know he rose from the dead. I know he defeated sin and death and therefore he's with me. I need not fear anything that comes my way. This is the question he puts to you and to me and to the early church facing persecution. Do you know who Jesus is? Are you convinced of who Jesus is? Because when you're convinced of it, nothing will break you. Because if he is who he says he is, if he is Yahweh incarnate, if he defeated sin, death and Satan on the cross, if he rose from the dead and he's alive, then we can believe him when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and believe me, now as you walk through life, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He still brings his light to dispel darkness. He still brings his wisdom where there is confusion. He still brings provision where there is need because he is Yahweh and he is with us. See, if you have a Jesus who is just a good teacher or Jesus who's a good wise man but not Yahweh, there is no comfort in that when you're facing martyrdom. And many of you have come to the end of your view of Jesus and go, yeah, this is too big for what I thought Jesus was. And you're looking at your finances, your resume, your networking, you're putting everything based on that for your future. And even then you go, some trials and traumas that come your way, some bleakness in society, you're going, this won't be my hope for the future. At the end of the day, sometimes everything is stripped away from you. That the only thing that keeps you resilient, the only thing that keeps you worshiping, the only keep, thing that keeps you with faith for the future is I know who Jesus is. I know why he came. I know he rose. And therefore I know he's with me and his kingdom is unstoppable. He is Yahweh. He is with us. I have the privilege, I said before, of being with many of you, facing despondency, facing deep challenges, facing sickness, facing uncertainty of your future. I join you in that. But you know what gets me worshipping every morning is not some optimism about our political regimes. Do you know what wakes me up with hope is not some kind of the church is on its best form. In fact, three of my mentors the last three months have all been exposed for unhealthy behaviour. I don't put my trust in pastors. I don't put my trust in politics. I don't put my trust in the scientific breakthrough, though I love all of that. I don't put my trust in my own finances, praise the Lord. I don't put my trust in my physical well-being, clearly. I only put my trust, I only have hope for the future, not because of anything except I know who Jesus is and he rose from the dead. Leslie Newbigin, a great missionary to India, was asked once, hey, with all the bleakness in the world, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He answered, you know, like confused, and went, well, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I just believe Jesus rose from the dead. It is, it's settled. Jesus is Yahweh. That means I don't need to be pessimistic or optimistic. Jesus just rose from the dead. Therefore, my hope is that he is in charge, he is king, his kingdom is unstoppable and he will return again and put things right. And in this moment, even though I'm in disappointments, I'm in battles, I'm in uncertainties, he promises to be with me, he promises to empower me, he promises to work all things for the good, even my stupid mistakes or the mistakes of others, he will work for the good because he is more powerful than anything. And therefore I wake up in the morning worshiping my God, my hope, that is unshakable. Is this the anchor of your faith? If it is, it's the same anchor that led Christians worshiping to the stake of martyrdom. Because I know even when I'm on a stake of flames, I fear no evil, I fear no death. Because in Jesus, after the cross and resurrection, he holds the keys of life and death and in him, though I die, I will not die but I'll be with him for eternity. And he will use my death to bring glory to Jesus on this earth. There is nothing that will turn me back to fear. But I wake up in the morning with faith, knowing that he is with me. There are two, as I close, two stories here which have kind of been defining in my life around, oh my gosh, I'm just putting my hope in Jesus. The first was when I was 18. I went to a school in England where your junior and, uh, what's the final word? Senior, junior and senior years, you reduce your subjects to three. They're called A-levels, like three subjects. You studied for two years and you had one final exam in each of, the, in each of those subjects. So two years of work, down to one exam in each subject. And your results of that exam determined which college you go to. Now, for me, as I said last week, a recovering perfectionist and performance-aholic, I'm going, okay, well, my future is in my hands. I gotta study, study, study. I want to get to that college, therefore I need these grades. 
And I worked so hard, I hardly slept during the exam period because I thought, you know what? Sleeping is just for fools, I gotta study. I woke up, did my exams, and I thought that based on my performance in my A-level results, then that will determine which college I went to. That would uh, determine which kind of internship I got at a law firm. That would determine whether I went to a good law firm or a bad law firm. That would end up in, do I get partnership? That would end up with, am I successful as a human being? And it all comes down to, how well do I do in these grades? Have you ever thought that way? Oh, all right, we're American, yes. (laughs) This is what I thought. But I had the presence of mind through a friend of mine rebuking me in my own worshipping myself and my results as God. He said, you do know God's in charge of your future. Yes, hard work. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, he will redeem even your mistakes if you trust him. So my school said, look, we need to mail you your exam results. Right? This is like back in 1854 when we used to mail people things. So they needed to, it was a self-addressed, self-stamped envelope, self-addressed stamped envelope. So I wrote my name on the envelope, put a stamp on it, um, and then handed it into the school. But I had the presence of mind and faith to know that actually my future is not in the hands of these results. I've worked really hard, but ultimately Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is my God. Jesus has designed for me things for him to do. And regardless of now what happens, I leave the outcome to him. Now I knew that was fine to say when I was given the envelope. I knew I'd be panicking by the time results. So I wrote on the back of the envelope three words to remind me before I opened the envelope. I simply wrote down, praise God anyway. Praise God anyway for whatever's in in this envelope, my life's in his hands. I remember that day I opened up the envelope, I prayed, I said, oh yeah, that was me, yes. I opened up the envelope, got my results, and they were not what I'd hoped for. And I remember going, I praise God anyway. I didn't get into the college I wanted. I praise God anyway. And now I'm here, so you work out what happens there. Um, so you, you work out if God knew what he was doing. Um, but the other, see, whatever you're going through, even if things don't work out the way you thought, I mean, city is, this city is the city of what? Broken dreams. Guess what? God brings dreams back to life. It may not be your dream, but he's got a bigger, better dream. If a dream dies in the hands of Jesus, it means he's got a bigger dream for you. It may not be on stage, it may be hidden. It may be not celebrity. It may be just squirreling away, making a difference for the kingdom where God wants you. Because his greatness is what he needs of you. But then finally, what shaped my life, a man who knew that despite disappointment, despite disillusionment, despite the headwinds of opposition, I know who Jesus is, therefore I'm gonna keep going. Half of the battle is to keep going. And this has been used so many times, but I'm gonna use it again, of a man called William Wilberforce. Because it spoke to me of the kingdom of God is unstoppable even if it feels like we're not making any progress. You know the story of William Wilberforce. At the age of 27, a young politician, wealthy aristocrat decided, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna go all in with Jesus. And he was convinced at that point that he was to give his life for the cause of God to abolish slavery. He saw the evils of slavery from Britain and convinced I have gotta do something about it. Like many of you have been convinced you've got to join with God to do something about the evils in this world. So he turned to Parliament as a politician, I'm going to abolish slavery. The problem is it didn't come easy. He went to Parliament with legislation to abolish slavery in 1789, 1791, 1792, 1794, 1796, 1798, 1799. 
they all failed. I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, Jesus, is your kingdom unstoppable? Did you call me to do this? But he endured because he knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus is and his kingdom is unstoppable. For the next 20 years, he was still working and in 1831, he sent a message to the anti-slavery society in which he said, our motto must be perseverance because ultimately I trust the Almighty will crown our efforts with success. In other words, I know who's God authority. I know his kingdom's unstoppable. What we have to do is keep going. In your trials right now, keep going. In the disillusionments of setbacks, keep going. Man, we've tried to heal our marriage or our family, keep going. Because your hope is not in your own strength, but you know who Jesus is and he's with you and his kingdom is unstoppable. In July, 1833, the abolition of slavery bill was finally passed in the UK parliament. Three days later, Wilberforce died. And I think he died going, see, the kingdom of God, no advance of the kingdom goes unopposed but no advance of the kingdom will be thwarted. Whatever you face, do you remember who Jesus is? Do you remember who's with you? Do you remember who's standing right with you and actually inside you by his spirit to say all authority in heaven and on earth is with me and I am with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you Let's get up, keep worshipping, because the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Amen. Let's stand together.